Freeman Dyson is a one-off. Now in his 90s, he was one of the finest minds of the past century to have excelled in both mathematics and physics. He's often said to be the best theoretician in living memory not to have won a Nobel Prize. And he's often commented that he's good at only two things, doing calculations and writing essays. Well, that's a bit too modest in my view, but it does help explain why he's written so beautifully about the relationship between mathematics and physics. My name's Graham Farmelow, and I have good reason to be grateful to Dyson. He's one of the most prominent figures in my new book, The Universe Speaks in Numbers. And during my stays at the Institute for Advanced Study in the past few years, I spent many hours talking with him, learning from him, reacting to his provocations. With Dyson, you're never quite sure what he's going to say next, though it's a safe bet that it won't reflect conventional thinking. I recorded the conversation you're about to hear in June last year, in his office on the same corridor as some of the world's leading researchers in theoretical physics. Dyson talked about his career first as an extremely promising mathematician at Cambridge University, though he thought the mathematical thinking there was rather behind the times. The pace had been set in France by the Bubaki group, which championed rigour and perfect clarity above everything else. This wasn't Dyson's cup of tea at all, so he chose to apply his mathematical skills to physics. This turned out to be a wise move. Within a few years, he'd made huge contributions to quantum electrodynamics, the theory of electrons and photons based on quantum mechanics and relativity. Before Dyson was 30, Robert Oppenheimer had secured him a plum faculty post at the Institute, hoping that he'd be one of the leaders in the field of fundamental physics for years to come. But within a few years, Oppenheimer saw that Dyson's research interests extended well beyond fundamental physics. They included biology, space science, nuclear proliferation and so on. Dyson was a polymath and wanted to spend his life exploring. I began by asking Dyson what made him choose to study mathematics at university rather than physics. Well, I started out just loving numbers as a small kid. I learned numbers before I learned letters. Oh. And I was scribbling big numbers as far back as I can remember. And the most vivid memory I have is actually of discovering infinite series. I don't know the date, but I was young enough to be in a crib, being put down for a nap after lunch. And instead of sleeping, I was calculating infinite series. But it was just... A gift from heaven, I don't know what it was, but uh, yeah. I added together one plus a half plus a quarter plus <laughs> an eighth and figured out that it added up to two, and it, I still remember the joy of that. But you didn't have that so much in physics? You weren't so much interested in the workings of the world in initially? No, I was never really interested in physics in that sense. I got interested in physics when I started reading popular science books, which was much later, and I suppose it was Eddington who was the first person I read. Arthur Eddington. His Time in Gravitation was one of my favourite books, and my father actually had a first edition which he had bought in 1920. But nonetheless, you did choose to study mathematics at Cambridge. And when I came to Cambridge, it was during World War II. All the physicists were away except for Dirac, and, and the, rest of the, the famous mathematicians were still there. Mm. So it was an easy choice. As I understand it, you enjoy studying mathematics. Oh, yes. So I'm interested in why you did choose, rather happily, to move into physics after you got that degree and after the war. Yes, I think it was, I discovered that the mathematics 
politics we had been doing in Cambridge was very old-fashioned. In the meantime, I mean, in France, Bourbaki had revolutionized mathematics, and that had not arrived in Cambridge when I was a student. Mm -hmm. And after the war, we knew the French had made this big jump. And so the mathematics I'd learned was actually totally old-fashioned. It was essentially 19th century, and the French had moved into the 20th. And it, mm -hmm. So it, I would have had to make a fresh start if I continued in mathematics. And by that time, I was interested partly because of the bomb that uh, changed our view of physics. It was obviously a subject for the future and not just for the past. At that time, fundamental theoretical physics was, some might say, stuck. Well, it wasn't so much stuck. I mean, physics was roaring ahead. The Columbia experiments were being done, mm. understanding the, five, the hydrogen atom. Mm -hmm. and so, I mean, clearly, it was the moment to move into physics. And but why, though? What was it that... Uh, well, basically because of the new experiments. Right. The fact that, I mean, radar had revolutionized mm. electronics and the bomb, of course, revolutionized nuclear physics. It was clear the subject was ripe for revolution, whereas to catch up with the French in mathematics would have taken much longer and not clearly would have led to anything much. And I was 20 years behind as far as mathematics was concerned, whereas in physics I was maybe five years behind them. Customs and practices within the physics and mathematics communities are different. So I put it to Dyson that his move to physics may have come as a bit of a shock. That's true, and of course I didn't really do physics in Cambridge at all. I had one physicist friend who was Nicholas Kemmer, who gave a course in nuclear physics. That was in 1946. I was there for one year, 1946-47, just before I came to America. So I had learned a lot of physics from Kemmer. That was all. Whereas, of course, I had been doing mathematics for five years with Hardy and Littlewood and Bezikovich and Davenport. And mm -hmm. These were all really first-rate mathematicians. Mm -hmm. But you went in to what must have seemed to a mathematically trained person pretty much a mess. I'm thinking about the theory of photons and electrons, quantum electrodynamics. And no, well, I had this enormous advantage, which, of course, I don't remember precisely mm -hmm. what I was thinking at mm -hmm. that time, but... It was a fact that I had learned quantum field theory, which was a sort of a European hobby. Quantum field theory was invented in Europe by Fermi and Heisenberg and Pauli, and, and it was a European monopoly, really, at that time. Americans didn't know about it, and, and I suppose Oppenheimer was really the only person in America who actually understood quantum field theory at that time. And from the point of view of Americans, it was an exotic and irrational entertainment, and mm. like Italian opera. <laughs> <laughs> but hold on, though. The big change after the war was when Feynman, Schwinger, Tomonaga, and then, of course, your good self. This was a big change in the way yes. that... Uh... That was quantum field theory that they were doing, but without really knowing it. Whereas I came with all the latest stuff. I mean, there was... A, textbook of Wenzel, Einführung into Quantum Theory. First of all, it was only published in German. Mm -hmm. It had been published in Vienna during the war. Mm -hmm. And I had a copy of it, which nobody in America had. <laughs> so so it, it, was, it was a sort of unfair advantage, which I took advantage of. <laughs> right. Oppenheimer recruited Dyson to work alongside the Institute's stellar theoretical physicists, including Albert Einstein, who then retired. 
What I wonder was Oppenheim's reaction when Dyson began to turn his attention to other subjects. Well, he was against it. He used the word unworthy. <laughs> I was doing things which were unworthy of an institute professor. He had this very exalted idea of particle physics as being the only thing that mattered. And he was an intellectual snob, of course. I mean, mm -hmm. he thought everything that wasn't pure deep thinking was second rate, whereas I had far more respect for experiments. And I was primarily interested in the tools of physics rather than the ideas. And he had this very narrow view of what science should be, which is very strange because he had been doing such a great job in Los Alamos where he had to be broad. But he always felt that uh, in Los Alamos he was serving his country, but he wasn't really doing science. Oppenheimer was an intellectual peacock flaunting his many interests to all comers. But I've heard that his interest didn't include higher mathematics. Not at all. I know he had a low opinion of pure mathematics altogether. And that was, of course, a cause of great grief. That mm. On both sides, there was a total mismatch. Soon after the Second World War, pure mathematics and fundamental physics went their separate ways. They got divorced, as Dyson and others like to say. How did that estrangement come about? Yes, I mean, certainly it was this ascendancy of Bourbaki. Bourbaki had absolutely no interest in examples. I mean, it was mm. everything had to be general. This is the French influence here. It, yes. was, well, it began in France, yeah. but of course it, it was worldwide by that time. Mm. And, and, mm -hmm. and the connections between physics and mathematics, of course, were always examples. Physics had uh, wonderful examples of things nature had dreamed up which we wouldn't have dreamed up on our own. And, and mm -hmm which to me were very precious, because Maxwell's equations being the biggest example, Maxwell's equations were actually the key to a whole lot of wonderful mathematics, but uh, Oppenheimer didn't recognize that. And it really was the case then that the physicists and mathematicians were, were in separate worlds, yes, roughly speaking. Yes, very much so. And of course, I mean, there was an additional personal problem was Oswald Veblen, who had been the grandfather of the Institute and who had been twice passed over for director. Mm. And he obviously should have been director when Oppenheimer was appointed, so the mathematicians resented that. Mm -hmm. And Veblen himself actually came into my office and ranted for about two hours. Coming, coming back up to date now, that divorce is quite some way behind us now. I mean, totally behind us. What, what do you think now about the relationship between... Uh, well, the big divide now is in physics and not between mathematics and physics. You have on the one side, you have what I call real physics, which is done with experiments. And there is string theory, which I consider a branch of pure mathematics. So the, the gulf is now between string theory and the rest of physics. The string theorists and the mathematicians get along fine and they talk the same language. Do you think that's unhealthy, that relationship? Yes. You do? Mm. Oh, yes. It's just as bad as it was in the old days when it's in a different place. Could you see anything that would make it better or, or do you think everything depends on getting some kind of experimental input into this relationship? Well, it all depends on what nature decides. I mean, in the end, nature answers our questions and it takes a long time. But there will be progress, finally, in understanding elementary particles. I mean, the, that's been, of course, the big disappointment that uh, for a hundred years we have actually made no progress in understanding the particles, why there are electrons and positrons and mm -hmm. protons and neutrons. And I mean, in the case of the nucleus, it took only 20 years from Rutherford to understanding the, 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 base, the basic st structure of nuclei. Mm -hmm. Whereas in this case, 
We have the structure, but we don't have the understanding. Finally, I asked Dyson whom he thought were the most impressive physicists he'd met during his career. Of the physicists I've known, I suppose the most impressive was Fermi. Uh, he had a total grasp of the theory and he also had a gift for experiments. He's the only one who really was world-class in both experiment and theory. Rabi was a bit like that too, but I mean, not, not quite as brilliant as Fermi, but also really a great mind. And among the younger people, of course, I find it hard to tell. I just don't understand them so well. Gilman certainly has done wonderful things. Mm. And, I mean, the invention of quarks was absolutely a world-shaking event. And, mm. and quarks is something that I certainly would never have dreamed up. You mentioned Feynman there, among the great people, that, and I know you were friends with him. Yes, he wasn't quite on the same level, I would say. But I mean, as a character and as a human being, he was superb. <laughs> but uh, as a physicist, well, he invented a marvelous tool, which was the Feynman diagram, and uh, I mean that was a huge contribution. He wasn't a deep thinker. I mean, Feynman was a calculator. He could calculate wonderfully, hmm. and the, the, the diagram was just a device for doing calculations very fast and efficiently. And mm. So he was, in a way, a sort of tool builder, but as a thinker, not on the level of Fermi. Mm. I was absolutely an, an enormous friend of Feynman, and I admired mm. him. And, but I think, as an objective judgment, I, I don't think he was a revolutionary. I mean, that was the funny thing. He wanted to revolutionize physics. But in fact, his great achievement was very conservative. It literally just said, yes, this is the way to do it, and it actually works. And mm. It was the old stuff that actually worked. It was just a little bit the same as Yang. I mean, where I remember I wrote a piece about Yang called The Conservative Revolutionary, and it was a little bit the same. I mean, he was a wonderful calculator, but in the end, he left physics more or less the same as it was. I was surprised that Dyson ranked the physicist Enrico Fermi so highly and that he was not more complimentary about his friend Richard Feynman. Most striking to me was how sceptical Dyson is of the mathematical developments in physics over the past 40 years. During that period, he hasn't done research in theoretical physics, but he's kept a sceptical eye on the key advances. It's plain that Freeman won't trust any big theoretical ideas unless and until experimenters give them the thumbs up. In that important sense, the mathematically trained Dyson is a feet-on-the-ground physicist. Although few leading theoreticians today would agree with his scepticism about many of the modern developments in theoretical physics, I think he's right to stress the importance of staying close to experiments. In my view, it's a lesson some of the more mathematical theoreticians today will do well to heed.